Hi, uh, my name is Ray. Um, I go to the morning service. Uh, Marcus and Andrew are both away, so I'm speaking today. Um, and we're going to look into Luke um, chapter 12, verse 54, all the way to chapter 13, verse 21. And that's on page 1051. Luke 1254. He also said to the crowds, When you see the cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see this south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why, don't you, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? And you go with your accusers before the judge before the magistrate, make every effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There was some prison at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they were suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. But those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told his parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dug around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had had a, a, a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and let it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like... Is like leaven that a woman took and hid it in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. 
right? In the Bible, the Pharisees is a group of people who constantly fight against Jesus. So as we read the Bible, we naturally think that Pharisees are incarnations of evil. They're little demons in human skins who goes around like bullies and skim against humanity. When people see Pharisees coming down the street, parents will grab their children and run inside the house, close the doors and close the windows. Dog and cats and chicken will just fly out of the way, you know, because the bad guys are coming. The Pharisees walking down the street. If you kind of like that image, in the, it's like a Western movie. Or if you prefer a more modern-day image, uh, we think that Pharisee, as they walk down the street slowly, one by one, the street lights, as they walk past them, they just explode, and the sparks fly off everywhere as they ushers in darkness and chaos. That's generally how people think about Pharisees. They are embodiments of evil. They are Satan's little helpers. Well, here I have, this is the summer book that I'm reading. Um, it's about a bunch of people aiming to live righteous life. And this is how the book described them. It says, zealous for scriptures, scrupulous in their giving, dedicated to living untainted by the world's evil, fervent in anticipating God's deliverance, conscientious in obedience to God's commands. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? And the title of the book is called Extreme Righteousness. It's also a book about Pharisees. So which description is more appropriate? Uh, let's hear what Jesus, how, how Jesus described them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 20, Jesus says, um, he was teaching a bunch of people in, in, in the crowd, and he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So one way to think about Pharisees is to think that they are actually an image of us, the best of us, when we are on our best behavior. But that's the problem. There is a gap between what's appearing outside and what's happening inside. And that's the first point. Self-justified rule-following produces hypocrisy. The first block of text warns us about mindless rule-following, blinds us um, to our own sins. And there are events in life where its outcomes are very predictable. So Jesus used two such events to emphasize this point. Uh, look with me at verse 54 and 55 in chapter 12. Jesus said to the crowds, When you see the cloud rising from the west, and Google Map tells us that the west of Israel is the Mediterranean, uh, which means uh, it will bring up moist air and therefore shower to Israel. And the wind comes from south, and the air will be hot and dry, because south of Israel is a desert, and therefore scorching heat will hit Israel. So the formula is, if event A happens, event B will soon follow. So if London Underground goes on strike, event A, traffic in London will be awful, event B. So what about this? When Jesus, God's chosen savior and judge, came to live among us, event A, the obvious outcome on the back of that event is saving and judging, event B. And yet, from chapter 12, verse 56 to 59, it seems that the Israelites were completely blind to who Jesus was. They saw Jesus stood in front of them doing jaw-dropping miracles and taught many heart-searching truths. 
and yet they were blind to Jesus' identity as the Savior and Judge promised by the Old Testament. Jesus' verdict of their blindness was hypocrisy. Verse 56. To fully understand the impact of Jesus' verdict, we need to understand why the Pharisees existed. Now, before Jesus came, for 460 years, God sent no prophet. Now, this is particularly alarming because never in the history of Israel God has been silent for such a long period of time, especially when Israel's were being overpowered by the superpowers at the time. So we had the Persians, we had the Greeks, we had the Romans. Every superpower had a goal at ruling Israel. So people decided to do something about it, and they started to form different types of groups. Um, And they formed these groups for the common purpose of restoring Israel's glory. So we have the Sadducees, who wanted to restore Israel's glory and independence through politics. And then we have the Zealots, uh, who are effectively revolutionaries. Um, They want to rescue Israel from Rome by force. And their party policy was swords and muscles. And then we have the Essenes, who basically say, I've had enough of this. I'm getting out of here. Um, So maybe let's pack our bags, go somewhere else, and start our new community there. Maybe God will join us over there. So that's what they did, the, the Essenes. And then we have the Pharisees who thought that if I really, truly, madly, deeply obey God's rule in the Old Testament, and if I take all the boxes on the list of righteousness, then God will be pleased enough with our dedication, and he will rescue Israel from the eagle claws of Rome. Just like what God has done many times before, Pharisees, they kept the rules so that they can be rescued by God. Now, is this particular understanding that blinded the Pharisees from seeing who Jesus was, from seeing Jesus as the rescuer who came to save them. They couldn't understand the fact that if their religious activities were sufficient enough to wipe away their sins, then there is no need for Jesus to come. Then, um, uh, and the fact that Jesus was here to pay for their sins meant that the religious activities were not the means to an end. No wonder Jesus called them hypocrites. If the Pharisees were truly repentant about their own sins and seeking forgiveness from God, they would have known who Jesus was, which means that their obedience was merely superficial. Their hearts wasn't seeking God. So Jesus tells them, wake up, interpret the time, verse 56. Come on, judge what is right, verse 57. Think, think why I'm here. I come because... You cannot deal with your sin, but your religious rules-keeping has blinded you from seeing the fact that you absolutely have an urgent problem with your sin. Verse 58 and 59. Now, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites because they appeared to be dedicated to God, yet their heart was far away from God. Now, that was interesting because we generally think about rebellion against God as flat-out disobedience to whatever God says, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and all that kind of jazz. But as the Pharisees have proven, we can also rebel against God by keeping all his rules and reserving our hearts from him. There's more than one way to rebel against God. And the second way is more dangerous because it blinds us from seeing that our own sins and thereby preventing us to repent. The rule-keeping rebellion is more insidious because we don't even know that we're in trouble. 
we mistaken religious zeal for genuine repentance. Now let's go a little bit deeper. Not everyone can be the kind of hypocrite that Jesus talked about in verse 56. Um, there are two very specific requirements to warrant that kind of accusation. The first is that there must be an understanding of the expectations. So Pharisee couldn't live like a God's people if they don't know what God's people look like. So requirement number one, you've got to know what's expected of you. And the second requirement is there must be an aspiration to their expectation. So Pharisees couldn't be hypocrites if they didn't want to be God's people. So two requirements. First, you've got to know what it looks like. Second, you want to look like that. Now with that in mind, all of a sudden, Jesus' warning about hypocrisy becomes directly applicable to anyone who claims to be God's people. Now, these are the people who actually meet both of those requirements to being a hypocrite. Now, please don't mistake me for accusing anybody for being a hypocrite. I'm not accusing anybody for being hypocrites. But Jesus' warning is for everyone to watch out for hypocrisy in ourselves. Hypocrites pretend, attend church on Sunday, Quiet time in the morning, talking all the lingo. Hypocrites turns Christianity into church entity. Hypocrites believe that by observing the rules will store up righteousness. And righteousness will give them credits on their spiritual balance sheets. Hypocrisy is superficial obedience. And the heart is far away from God. Clearly, the Bible sees hypocrisy as a very major problem. And let's just think about this for a minute. We have four gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus is the main character of those four gospel books. That's a given. And then the second most popular characters are the disciples. That's understandable as well. They're constantly appearing and asking Jesus for explanations about his teaching and actions. You know, we need those things in order to know the full meaning of what Jesus is trying to tell us. That's understandable. But what about the third most common characters in the, in the gospel books? They are actually the Pharisees and the scribes. So why did the gospel writers record so many accounts of Pharisees clashing with Jesus? I think it's because they, they want to warn us about hypocrisy. Even when we have God's word, the mindless rule-keeping can still blind us to seeing our own sin. And therefore, we must listen to Jesus' warning and examine our hearts. All the things in the Bible that tell us to do, they are very good. But if we think that by doing those things will grant us righteousness, then we've missed the point. We became hypocrites. And that blinds us to our own sin. It is Jesus who gives us righteousness. He came to save us from our own sins. Don't let that truth wander away from your heart. Not only does the hypocrisy blind us from our own sin, it also makes us self-righteous as well. Now let's take a look at chapter 13, verse 1 to 9. Now after hearing what Jesus said about hypocrisy, some people from the crowd seem to be following Jesus' warning that hypocrisy is hiding sin inside the heart. And since God will not let any sin go unpunished, according to chapter 12, verse 59, then they brought up two horrific news items involving people's lives being cut short by events outside of their control. They were effectively asking, Jesus, did those people die because they were hypocrites? 
that they harbor sin inside their heart, and their sin finally caught up to them, and God decided to wipe them out. For both of those events, Jesus' answer was the same. He said twice in verse 2 to 5, Do you think that these people were worse sinners than all the others? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here we can see another symptom of hypocrisy, and that is self-righteousness. Because hypocrisy is based on the assumption of stacking up your spiritual credits, uh, stacking up your spiritual wallets with your righteous deeds in order to pay for your own sins. Therefore, bad things happen only to those who deserve punishment. God is just. The worse the sinner, the more horrific the punishment. They deserve it. The knee-jerk reaction to all kinds of events was judgment. And did you pick up that sense of superiority that Jesus alluded to in his answer? Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the others? It's comparative. They try to put others down in order to make themselves look good. Sideway comparison is a classic sign of self-righteousness. Fingers is always pointing outwards. Fingers always wagging. Self-righteousness also makes people cold. Two horrific accidents have just happened to their own countrymen on their own land. The first one in Galilee and the second one in Jerusalem. And yet, there was no grief. There was no mercy and no grace. Their response was stone cold. And this is complete opposite to who God is and what God wanted for his people. Mercy and grace. The second half of Jesus' response corrects their thinking and urges repentance. He said, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus said, everyone's sinful, so stop measuring people with the rector scale of sin. The question is not about who sinned more, so we can wag our fingers at them. Rather, if these things happen to us, are we ready to meet our judge? Therefore, the only sinner that we have to worry about is ourselves. And with that particular answer, Jesus grabbed hold of this outward-pointing finger, bent it, and twisted inward. We are all sinners, and we need repentance. More than that, Jesus went on to explain that God is not a cold-blooded sin punisher. Rather, he is slow to anger and quick to forgive. But slow to anger is not the same as no anger. There is limit to God's patience, and the patience is running out. Verse 8, verse 9. Leave it alone for one more year. If it bears fruits next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. God is merciful and patient. He doesn't want to destroy. His forgiveness always comes on the back of repentance. But the clock is ticking. Think about it. If God really is just that cold-blooded sin punisher, then there's no point in sending his son Jesus to warm, to suffer, and to die for our sins. He could have just wiped us out. In other words, God proved that he's merciful and patient the moment that he sent Jesus for us. Every day, the newspaper reads like a sad story. It reads like a collage of, a tr- of a tragic pictures. 
And if we are on board, what if we were on board flight MH370? What if the factory nearby our house blew up? When tragic event happens, it should prompt us to reflect whether we are ready. If we are not repented, then we are living on borrowed time. We are walking on thin ice. God is slow to anger, but do not assume that God has no anger. As for us who believe in Jesus, we're just like the fig trees in the vineyard. Uh, we enjoy so many spiritual privileges. We have the Bible in English in the translation of our own choosing. Um, we have um, uh, many faithful resources to teach us on paper and online. We have the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the Bible. God gave them to us to cultivate spiritual fruits, not to give us bragging rights over others and say, I'm a disciple of Christ. I hold true to the Bible. I read Christian books. I listen to sermons online. I am more righteous than you. Hypocrisy does not start with H. Hypocrisy starts with I. The spiritual blessings are to make us to see that it is by God's grace that we are saved. And it is Jesus that makes me good. And as we sing songs later, as we tilt our heads backwards, we need to look up to God, not looking down our noses. Chapter 12 began with, Beware of the living of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. I think for all of us, if we're being honest, there will be plenty of things and thoughts that we wish can stay hidden forever. I have a very good Christian friend who helps me to understand the Bible and share his life with me. He's been married for 55 years, and he's been a Christian for 40 years. And quite often when we meet together, he will say, Ray, if my wife knows what's in my head for the past week, she will divorce me on the spot. (laughs) I truly believe that he's right. Not in the sense that his wife should divorce him on the spot, but in the sense that if our thoughts were on display for everyone to see, it would be equally as bad as a newspaper. It would just be another collage of horrific pictures. Now, so far in this passage, It's all about strong warnings. And if you're investigating into the Christian faith, you might be thinking to yourself, all this talk about sin and judgment and time running out, Christian message is all about manipulation through faith. Manipulation through fear. Fear produces burden. I don't want to be loaded with heavy burdens. But believing in Jesus is not about taking on extra burden. Believing in Jesus actually takes away burden. It is hypocrisy. That brings burden. And that's the second point. Christ freed us from restrictive hypocrisy. Hypocrisy weighs us down like a heavy burden. It's a ruthless master. Because there's no mercy when you don't meet its demands. And it never gives you rest. Have a look with me to chapter 13, verse 10 to 17. Here we have an incident where Jesus restored a woman's health on Sabbath day which is the day of rest. Now, have a look at the words that describes the problem. Verse 11, disabled, bent over, not fully straightened. Verse 14, work. Verse 16, bound, bond. The image is a slave, heavy laden, in bondage. And look at the word that describes the solution. Verse 10, Sabbath, which means rest. 12, free. Verse 13, made straight. Verse 15, untie, 
verse 16, loosed. The contrast is very clear. The woman was restrained, and Jesus sets her free. Hypocrisy not only blinds, but it also binds. It binds us with a standard to live up to. It even, events, it even invents new standards on top of what God set out for us. There's no healing on Sabbath through in verse 14. It was dreamed up by the Pharisees. Because their mindset is, I am the one who justifies myself. I keep rules to please God. I am my own savior. Remember, heartless rule keeping is just another form of rebellion against God. But the gospel challenges that view. The gospel says, eyes of judgment is on Jesus, not on me. Jesus is my justifier, not me. I don't like exams. And if you're anything like me, you'll know that we get very nervous about it because we never know whether we've done enough or not. The exam period used to be the worst part of my life. It's constantly living under pressure. And I feel even worse when I fail. If we try to keep all the rules to justify us, then our whole life will be like an exam. We'll be constantly living under pressure. Every moment could be the moment of failure for us. It's relentless because we'll never know whether we've done enough. But if Jesus is my justifier, then I'm already cleared of my sin. It's like heading to an exam knowing that I've already aced it because it's not about what I've done but what Jesus did. Jesus kept all the rules from God. But unlike the hypocrites who kept the rules to justify themselves, Jesus only kept God's rules to justify you and me. Jesus kept God's rules to love God and to love others. Hypocrites used man-made rules to find faults in others. Jesus used God's rules to find worth in people. Just like how he described the woman in verse 16. She's a daughter of Abraham. And a daughter of Abraham ought to be more important than an animal and should be freed on Sabbath day. And if you're looking into the Christian faith at the moment, reading the Bible is a great place to start. It's the best place to start. But please don't use the Bible and try to find rules to follow. You'll eventually just end up being a hypocrite. You'll be blind to your own sin. You'll be self-righteous over others. And your life will be filled with expectations that you can never live up to. Mindless rule-keeping is a bondage. So don't read the Bible just to look for rules to keep. Rather, read the Bible and look for Jesus. Because he gives rest. He can liberate you from the straitjacket of hypocrisy. Only with Jesus as your God first, then doing what God says makes sense. This is the gospel that Jesus has kept all the rules to justify us, to give us rest. We see that so clearly on the cross, as Jesus, the only righteous man in history, gave up his freedom to be bound on the cross. He exchanged his freedom for our bondage. So let him deal with our sins and trust Jesus as our justifier, as our Lord. Jesus is a kind master who takes over your burden and gives you rest. God's rule set us free. Worldly rules keep us in bondage. And if we already profess Christ to be our Lord, we need to take warning from Revelation 2, our first reading, 
where God acknowledges the Ephesians church for standing firm in the world, but warns them for forgetting their first love for Jesus. Therefore, we learn that hypocrisy does not stop at the points where we receive Jesus. It's an ongoing problem. It's always looking around and looking for ways to come back. So we need to examine our hearts regularly. Jesus is our first love when we accepted him. So let's remain it that way. Let's remain in relationship with him. Thankfully, this struggle will not last forever. And that's the last point. And one day, Christ will rule. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 18 to 21. Jesus used two two parables to describe the kingdom. Both parables tell us the same point, that the kingdom of God starts off small, but will eventually cover the whole earth. And as Jeremy has illustrated earlier, a mustard seed is the smallest seed known at the time. The first parable says that the kingdom of God is like a tiny little seed that grows into a big and solid tree. The second parable, Jesus picked a huge amount of flour for illustration. Three measures of flour is about 50 pounds of weight worth of flour. So a pinch, but a pinch of yeast can eventually permeate the entire loaf. For both parables, growth is the same. The kingdom will start off insignificant, but the growth is guaranteed and will ultimately reach to a point of maturity. God has a plan to grow his kingdom. And one day, when the kingdom reaches maturity, the time is up and its king will come. By then, there will be two groups of people. One group will be in jubilation and the other group will be utter terror. Their ultimate destiny couldn't be far more apart. But there's one thing common about these two groups of people, and that is the time to change your mind is over. Time is running out. Seize the day to examine our hearts for attitudes of self-justification, which leads to hypocrisy that blinds, binds, and weighs us down with demands. Jesus offers freedom from bondage of hypocrisy. Join his kingdom and trust him as your Lord. If you don't know Jesus enough and have questions about him, can I invite you to come and speak to me or speak to anybody or speak to the person who brought you along um, so that we can sort something out. Now, why don't we spend a couple minutes to reflect on the message. Uh, when the music starts, uh, let's stand and sing.